Good morning. Please take out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. It's always fun to start something new. And this morning we begin a new series in the Gospel of Luke. Now, my original desire was to start the Gospel of Luke as soon as we finished uh, 1 Samuel. But as we got to the end of the book, I realized that we couldn't just stop at 1 Samuel 31 with Saul being killed. We had to at least see David through to becoming king. And so we stretched it out a few chapters into 2 Samuel. And then at 2 Samuel 7, right, David has now received the promises of the David covenant. Uh, that seems like a, a good enough spot to end that series and transition to a new one. And so uh, if you're holding your your Bible in front of you, go about two-thirds of the way in. You come to the New Testament, and then the first four books of that New Testament are are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, of those four, our attention is going to be on uh, the third, the Gospel of Luke, uh, for the time to come. And just fair warning up front, uh, when I say uh, for the time to come, that is a purposely ambiguous phrase. I have absolutely no idea how long it's going to take us uh, to get through the entire book. Uh, Luke is not only the longest of the four Gospels, but it's actually the longest book in the New Testament. And we're probably going to go pretty slowly. And we're probably going to take a break or two in the middle to do another series here uh, or there. And so my guess is that we are going to be in this book for quite some time. But remember, the goal isn't so much for us to get through the book of Luke as it is for the book of Luke to get through to us. And so uh, our ultimate goal, right, First Baptist Church, our ultimate goal in studying this book is that we might know the Lord Jesus better, right? Like the evidence that this book has actually gotten through to us will be if we as individual believers, and collectively as a church, uh, if we know Christ better and we live in light of that knowledge. Now, all of the Bible points us to Christ. Like every single book in the Bible uh, testifies to Jesus, right? These are they that testify of me. Uh, I think we saw that in our study in First and Second Samuel, right? Even though the, the main characters in those stories and those narratives, it's guys like Samuel and, and Saul and, and David— Every single story, every single narrative still points us straight to Christ. Now that's true, but it's also true that the Gospels, like Luke, the Gospels give us an especially like close-up look at the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Like the main character in most of the narratives and the stories that we're going to be looking at is Jesus himself. And the person who is telling the parables and teaching the teachings that we're going to study is Jesus himself. And so if we want to know Jesus better, and what Christian doesn't want to know Jesus better, uh, we would do really well to study the Gospel of Luke. And so I'm really looking forward uh, to the months to come as we dive into this book together. And I hope you're with me. I hope that you are uh, excited as well. Most of us, uh, when we're starting a, a book, uh, you know, you just get the Amazon package, you open it up, you take the book out, you just can't wait to read it. Uh, what do you do? Well, you go straight to chapter one. Uh, we just kind of skip the preface, 
skip the introduction, skip whatever comes before, uh, partly because we want to get to the good stuff, and partly because it makes us feel like we've accomplished something, like right off the bat, like, oh, I'm already on page 17. But I don't know. That seems like cheating to me. Uh, like, I'm, I'm one of those strange people uh, that just really feels obligated to read the forward and read the preface uh, and read the introduction and read the dedication, uh, confession. Uh, I even read the endorsements. Right? Like, this book is a must-read for anybody who's really looking into Like I, I need to read the endorsements also. Uh, I know most of all, you, like, you, you all can just kind of skip that and, and your conscience remains clear. Uh, good for you. I feel guilty doing that. So, you know, Romans 14, right? Don't pass judgment on me. With most books, with most reading materials, with most literature, uh, that's just me being strange. But here with the Gospel of Luke, in this instance, I'm in the right and you are in the wrong. Right? You cannot just skip the intro. And so you can't just open to the Gospel of Luke and you're, you know, you're in verse 1. In as much. And you're like, okay, I don't even know what in as much means. Honestly, I didn't know that it was a word. You say, okay, well, blah, blah, blah. Eyewitnesses, orderly account, blah, blah, blah. Okay, here we go. Verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Like, now we're getting to the good stuff. Now we're getting to the birth narratives. But you can't do that. The introduction. Verses 1 through 4. Nobody's life verse. Right? You've never seen a, a fridge magnet with that inscription. But remember that this too is God's holy word. Right? That means this too will be profitable for us to study as God's people. And so before we jump into the story, and we're going to start with verse 5 next Sunday. We've got to read the introduction. We've got to study the introduction. So look along and read this morning's text. This is the introduction to Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It's uh, one long sentence in the original Greek, and it's one long sentence in our English translations. And so uh, try to follow along carefully with Luke's thought. This is the word that God has for you today. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Our Father, we praise you for you have given us your word that you have revealed yourself to us through your holy word that we might know you. We truly believe that your word is powerful and we truly believe that your word does things. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit would work in us through the preaching this morning. Father, please be with me that every word out of my mouth would be true and edifying for your people, and honoring to you. Father, please be with those hearing. Grant them a great focus on your word, that they might behold your glory. We ask all this in faith, in Jesus' name. Amen. New book, new series, same brilliantly alliterated outlines. And so let's look at the writer, the research, 
the recipient, and the reason. Boom. First, let's consider the writer. Point number one is the writer. Look at verse three. It seemed good to me also. And you say, well, who's me? Now, with some books of the Bible, there's significant debate about who the author is. You take, for example, uh, the book of Hebrews. Uh, You look at 10 different commentaries about Hebrews, and they're going to give you 11 different authors, right? But with the Gospel of Luke, there's never really been any serious debate. Like, from very early on in church history, it was widely accepted, always, that Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. Now, many of you will know that Luke also wrote the, gospel, the book of Acts. Uh, and you can uh, basically think of Luke as being part one and Acts as being like part two of a, a two-volume history. Uh, like in the very first verse of Acts, Luke refers to what he wrote in the first book. And that obviously is referring to the gospel of Luke. And that continues the story. And so Luke is about the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And Acts is what comes next, right? How Jesus' disciples then carry forth his mission through the Holy Spirit after Jesus ascends. And so in this case, the usual order of the books of the Bible, like the, the canonical order in our Bibles is Luke, then John, then Acts. That's kind of unfortunate, right? Because really it would make more sense if Acts came directly after the book of Luke, since that's how it's supposed to be read. But what do we know about our writer? What do we know about this Luke guy? The answer is surprisingly not much, which is kind of interesting if you think about it, because nobody wrote more words in the New Testament than Luke. Like Paul wrote more books in the New Testament, uh, of course. Uh, But in terms of total words, Luke actually comes out on top. And so we've got this guy, right? He's written more of the New Testament than anybody else. And yet we know very little about him because he really doesn't appear at all in Scripture. Like Paul, we know all about the life of Paul. And it's actually mainly from what Luke wrote in the book of Acts. But Luke, his name never appears in his own writings. And in other New Testament books, he only appears in a few select places. Now, one of those places is Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. And there we learn a little bit of information about Luke. Uh, Paul writes, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. Now, from that, we can uh, learn at least three things. One, he was beloved, which is good. Uh, Two, he was a doctor. And three, He was a companion of Paul, right? He was with Paul when Paul wrote the letter of Colossians while under arrest in Rome. He's also in the greetings of Philemon, uh, which was probably written around the same time as Colossians. And so he was a companion of Paul. We also know from Colossians that Luke probably was not Jewish. Uh, A few verses earlier, uh, in Colossians chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, uh, Paul lists out some of his fellow workers, and he writes, These are the only Jews among my fellow workers. And then he talks about Luke a few verses later. And so we can infer from that, that Luke himself was not a Jew, but Luke was a Gentile. You say, so what? Well, we're going to see, as we study this book, that Luke seems to put a particular focus 
on salvation for the Gentiles in his gospel. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And so that special emphasis, well, it makes sense since Luke himself is a Gentile who was saved. Another clue we have about Luke comes from uh, the book of Acts. As I said earlier, Luke's name never actually comes up in the book. Uh, But starting in around Acts chapter 16, when uh, Paul's in the city of Troas, uh, you begin to see what are sometimes called uh, the we passages. Uh, And that's not we, like Ali Whited might say we. Uh, These are uh, passages in which Luke uses the second person plural, we, as opposed to the third person, they. Which means what? That means that Luke himself was involved in those narratives. Luke himself was present. He was part of the action. Those we passages basically span from Acts 16 all the way to the end, Acts 28. And so that supports that inference that we made earlier, that Luke traveled with Paul as a companion on his various trips. Now, given that the book of Acts, right, Acts 28, ends with Paul in prison, awaiting trial in Rome, with Luke by his side, uh, when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him. Uh, some have surmised that Luke wrote Luke and Acts at that time. Seems reasonable enough, but we can't be certain. But we can't be certain about one more detail uh, in its little biographical sketch of Luke, because there's one more reference to him, and that's from the letter of Second Timothy. So you'll remember 2 Timothy is the last letter that Paul wrote. Uh, He writes it uh, in his final imprisonment before he's about to be executed. Uh, Well, Paul writes, 2 Timothy 4.11, Luke alone is with me. And so if we add that to our picture, we see that Luke is not only a traveling companion of Paul's, but he's a faithful companion to the very end. Like even when others had deserted Paul or uh, others had moved on in in terms of his imprisonment, uh, Luke was loyal and Luke was present to the very, very end. Point number one, the writer, Dr. Luke. Which brings us to point number two, the research. Look again at verse one. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, by the way, if uh, you're wondering, uh, inasmuch is a real word. It's one word, and it means to the degree that or to the extent that. And so many others have already tried to compile a, a narrative about Jesus. Now that might be referring to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, that might include the Gospel of Matthew. But many uh, clearly refers to more than just those two writings. This is something that I... Never really thought about until this week. But do you realize how many people who saw Christ perform miracles, who listened to his teachings, like how many of those people probably wrote their own accounts of Jesus? Now, I'm not talking about like inspired, uh, God-breathed biblical accounts, of course. Uh, of those, there are only the four Gospels. Uh, I'm just talking about like letters to friends, or records for themselves, or uh, evangelistic accounts 
that they wrote for their unsaved loved ones. Hey, here's this Jesus that I've heard about. Here's this Jesus that I witnessed doing this or that miracle. Many had undertaken to compile those narratives. Now, while Luke acknowledges that others have written and compiled accounts about Jesus, look at verse 3, he is moved himself. It seemed good to me also to put together an account of his own, uh, an account of the things that have been accomplished among us. Now, accomplished among us is probably not the best English translation. Uh, If you look in the NIV or uh, the CSB, they have things that have been fulfilled among us. Fulfilled. I think that probably gets at the sense of what Luke is saying better. Luke, and we're going to see this theme throughout his gospel, Luke is big on the idea of the fulfillment of God's plan. This idea that Jesus came to fulfill God's plan of salvation. That's what he's referring to here. That's what he's trying to compile an account of. If you skip ahead real quick to the end of the gospel, uh, chapter 24, you can see that uh, this is an idea that comes up even even in what Jesus says. Uh, These are my words, this is Jesus speaking, that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, right, that's the Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Luke is big on this, which makes sense because Jesus is big on this. Throughout the gospel, we're going to see the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus as the fulfillment of all of God's promises and prophecies about him. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That's what many people have been writing about, and that is what I want to write about. But here's the thing about Luke. Luke wasn't an eyewitness. Luke wasn't an eyewitness himself like Matthew and John, who uh, were apostles who were with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry. You remember what John wrote in the very beginning of 1 John? uh, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Uh, Luke didn't have any of that experience. Uh, He didn't hear the parables with his own ears. And he didn't see the miracles with his own eyes. And he didn't touch Jesus with his own hands like Matthew or John or perhaps even Mark. Though he wasn't an apostle, he might have been around. Which means that Luke really had to do his homework in order to write his account of Jesus. Point number two, the research. Luke had to investigate Luke had to visit places. Luke had to conduct interviews. Luke had to search out eyewitnesses. Look at verse 2. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, in the same way that those eyewitnesses delivered these things to us, that's how I'm putting together my account. And that word delivered, that's a word that We see throughout the New Testament uh, to refer to the faithful uh, transmission of teaching. 1 Corinthians 15.3 is probably uh, the most famous example. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That's Paul referring to the gospel, delivering the gospel. 
Well, in the same way as the gospel has been delivered, well, Luke desires to faithfully transmit and deliver an accurate account of the life of Christ. And so Dr. Luke undertakes this massive effort uh, to compile everything that he can find, looking into these many things that had been written, getting eyewitness testimonies, uh, cross-referencing and and cross-checking and corroborating everything in order to get to a final product. And so really, it's no wonder that Luke is the longest of the four Gospels. Uh, It's a product of his meticulous, detailed research. So you can just picture Luke in your mind's eye. Tracks down Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary, tell me about the time when you saw your cousin Elizabeth uh, when you were both pregnant. What did she say? Did you say that John leaped in his mother's belly when you greeted Elizabeth? Okay, and then when you went to Jerusalem, uh, so how, how old was Jesus at that point? Okay, uh, and uh, who is this Simeon guy? Uh, and, and did he speak before or after uh, this Anna lady? Uh, did you say this Anna lady was from the tribe of Asher? You can imagine him tracking down the, the two guys on the road to Emmaus. Okay, so you're the two guys. Okay, uh, Tell me, what did Jesus say to you? Then what happened? So at what point did you recognize who he was? And how did you feel when he talked to you on the road and, and he opened to you the scriptures? Oh, our hearts burned within us. Like Luke is the guy from college who like diligently tracked down every primary source and had like different color index cards for for each one right like the rest of us are are just citing wikipedia this guy he's got he's got the whole source meticulously everything is tracked down luke was a careful meticulous diligent and detailed researcher and historian and so it's no surprise that his product that the work the gospel is a careful, meticulous, diligent, and detailed gospel. And of course, we can understand why Luke would be so careful in his research. I mean, first and foremost, this is literally life or death stuff, right? This is eternal life, eternal death stuff, and so he's got to get it right. But also, given all the commotion about Jesus in that time, Uh, given that many others had written accounts, given that many people who had witnessed these things with their own eyes were still alive, given that he himself was not there for any of it, well, if he's not careful and he gets stuff wrong, well, then his entire work is going to lose all credibility. Like suppose Luke said, you know what? Both of the thieves on the cross uh, that were crucified with Jesus, uh, both of them repented. Well, someone who was there and witnessed Jesus' crucifixion would say, wait wait a minute, I was there. You weren't there. I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. I heard it with my own ears. Only one of them repented. Only one of them said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that would then cast out, not just on that specific narrative, but on everything that Luke wrote. And so Luke had to be careful. Luke had to be meticulous. Luke had to be detailed and diligent in his research. Point number two, the research. Friends, this is, I think, very important 
uh, for us to understand and to know. Uh, Christianity, uh, biblical Christianity, it's not like philosophical speculation or like abstract musings or kind of like fluffy and nebulous ideas about salvation that are kind of just out there somewhere. Now, Christianity, biblical Christianity, is grounded in history. Uh, The culmination of it comes through a historical event, right? The historical event of Christ dying on the cross and rising again from the dead. Our salvation is not based on like theoretical ponderings. It's grounded in a well-attested, widely witnessed historical event. Christ crucified. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. All of that history, uh, those historical events that are, that are the grounds of our faith, well, that's recorded for us in well-researched, meticulous accounts like Luke's. I think you can see this really clearly in how uh, the apostles— preached in the book of Acts. Like when the apostles preach in the book of Acts, uh, they don't just prattle on like the Athenians at the Areopagus, which kind of sit around and uh, discuss speculation and uh, philosophies and new ideas and theories all day. The apostles preach the verifiable facts about the death and the resurrection of Jesus and then the implications of that historical fact. Listen to how Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see that? A man attested to you, like you saw the works and the wonders and the signs and the miracles. You yourselves know it. And then the crucifixion, you know that it happened. You were the ones who killed him. Peter presents verifiable facts. You were there. Continuing in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. Like you know that to be historical fact. We're all witnesses. You either saw it with your own eyes or you have friends that were eyewitnesses who saw the risen Christ themselves. Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 15, like there was this one time when 500 people saw him. You can go ask them. Yes, God must grant faith, right? God must grant faith that we might be saved. He must give his children eyes to see. But what our eyes then see by faith isn't just abstract concepts. It's the eternal significance of a historical cross event that God used to accomplish salvation for his people. With that said, and I think this is important for us to consider here, the reason that we're here 2,000 years after the fact, spending our Sunday morning studying this man's writings is not because he was a careful researcher. It's not because he was diligent. It's not because Luke was really meticulous with his eyewitnesses. 
No, it's because these words that we have in front of us are the very words of God. Like if this wasn't God's word, it doesn't matter how careful and how diligent Luke's research was, like his gospel wouldn't be in our Bibles and we would not be paying much attention to anything that he wrote. Now you might be asking at this point, okay, but how does that work? Like if Luke is doing all of this research and Luke is being diligent and Luke is writing up the account, then is it Luke's work? Or is it God's word? And the answer is yes. This is one of those mysteries that I don't think we will ever fully understand. Right? Like how something can be both the work of a human and the very words of God. Because it's not like, like Luke is a robot. Like he's got his, his quill in his hand and he's got his papyrus in front of him and, and the Holy Spirit is like moving his hand to write out the words of his gospel. Like, like those of you who are parents, you might help your four-year-old how to learn his letters. Like Luke is trying to start his gospel with a normal word, but the Holy Spirit's like, in as much, in as much. And Luke's like, I don't even know what that means. Why am I writing in as much? I can't help it. No, in as much is Luke's word. That's a word that he himself thought of. That's a word that he himself wanted to start the gospel with. Now, yes, some scripture, like you look at some of the prophetic writings, uh, some scripture is direct dictation. It's, It's direct quotation of God. Thus saith the Lord. Boom. But most of the scriptures, and Luke here in particular, most of the scriptures is simply the human author writing what he wants to write. And so every single Greek word on that original papyrus was Luke's words that reflect Luke's research and Luke's mind and Luke's education and Luke's vocabulary. And yet, at the same time, every single word was God-breathed. Theologians call that verbal plenary inspiration uh, it's basically the same idea as Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke from God. And so Luke is writing. But at the same time, Luke is being carried along by the Holy Spirit so that the words that are produced are God-breathed scripture. That brothers and sisters, is a great mystery. God works through Luke compiling stories. God works through Luke tracking down eyewitness accounts. God works through Luke diligently putting forward what he believes to be a faithful and sincere account of the life of Jesus. And at the same time, God himself is carrying Luke along so that every single word that Luke writes is divine, and infallible, and inerrant, and true. I mean, just think about the implications. Like, do you realize that Luke, while writing this gospel, could not have made a mistake? Like, God sovereignly protects him from any possible human error. Whether that's an error in reasoning, or an error in someone's eyewitness testimony, or even an error in like geographical detail, or an error in recording something that uh, he had read or he had heard. How does that work? That is a great mystery. 
the smart people will use words like concurrence, uh, like the simultaneity of human agency and divine sovereignty, but whatever you call it, right? It, it is a great mystery to us. Uh, in one sense, just to kind of give you an analogy that might be helpful, it's kind of like Jesus being totally God and totally man, right? The, the hypostatic union. Uh, the scriptures are totally written by God, and totally written by man. And both of the, the, these concepts are, are biblical and true and wonderful, but at the same time, they are just grand mysteries that our, our, our finite minds cannot grasp. All we know, right, all we need to know, is that Luke was faithful in his research and his study and his compilation, and that he was simultaneously directed by the Holy Spirit so that every single word in the original gospel of Luke is Luke's own words, and at the same time, God-breathed scripture. So brothers and sisters, the book that you are holding in your hands is like no other book. It's a book written by God through human authors like Luke, God using the research and the effort and the recording and the compiling of human authors like Luke. But it's not only a a book written by God, it's also a book preserved by God. Just think about how God has sovereignly worked throughout human history to preserve the writings so that 2,000 years after Luke wrote these words, we here might have a translation in our own language. These are truths that have been under attack for centuries uh, by unbelievers and by skeptics and by heretics. And yet God has preserved for his people his word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Other works. Just think about all the uninspired narratives of Jesus. That Luke made a reference to. The the, the many efforts that were undertaken uh, even before Luke. Well, those have been lost to history. Now here we are, each of us, with with a copy of the gospel of Luke open in front of us even now. It's just like quick application here. If the Bible is that special, a book written by God and a book preserved by God, well, you ought to commit your life to reading it, to studying it, and to knowing it. Like, if you really believe that the God of the universe has revealed himself and spoken to his people through this word, and you really believe that God not only wrote this word, but has preserved it in his sovereignty for you, well, you would be an absolute fool to take it up as infrequently as the average Christian. The writer... The research, next, let's consider the recipient of this gospel. Point number three is the recipient. Verse three, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. The recipient of this gospel was Theophilus. Let's think about that name, Uh, Theophilus, uh, Theo, a root meaning God, right? Think theology. Phyllis comes from a root that means love. Uh, think Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. And so Theophilus just means love by God. And so some have taken that to say, well, 
Luke is just writing to all Christians here, right? Like everyone who's loved by God. And so Theophilus then becomes this general term or this kind of secret code word for, for Christians, for believers. Uh, kind of like how I might refer to you all as brothers and sisters. Which means then that I'm Theophilus. And if you're a Christian, you're a Theophilus. Since we're all kind of Theophilus. Uh, but really, there's no reason to assume that Theophilus wasn't an actual person. Uh, apparently, it was a common name back then. And uh, you look at how Luke refers to him with this title, uh, Most Excellent Theophilus. Uh, that was a title commonly used for Roman officials back then. So uh, later on in the book of Acts, Paul actually uses the same title to refer to uh, governors, uh, Most Excellent Felix or Most Excellent Festus. So we can guess that Theophilus was a real person who also happened to be maybe a Roman official or, or some higher up of some sort. This orderly account is for you, Theophilus. But while the gospel was written for Theophilus, it wasn't written only for Theophilus. Luke's intention when he wrote this was that the gospel would be widely distributed. And we know that. Because the kind of preface that we see here in verses 1 through 4, it was commonly used in classical Greek writing to introduce like public documents. Documents that would be distributed, circulated. And the really smart people even tell us that the language that Luke uses in verses 1 through 4, it's different from the language that he uses in the rest of the gospel. And the rest of the gospel is uh, written in common Greek. Uh, but the first four verses, uh, this preface was written in classical Greek. And so this is a classical Greek preface for a formal, to-be-circulated document. All that to say, yes, this was written to Theophilus and for Theophilus. But clearly Luke intended it to be read among a wider audience. And more importantly... Uh, through his inspiration of Luke and through his preservation of this gospel in the canon of the New Testament, God intended for this work to be read among a wider audience. Right? And by wider audience, I mean all of his people who would read his word. Uh, so that we right, and countless other brothers and sisters in church history can benefit from this work that was intended for Theophilus. Point number three, the recipient. So Theophilus is the recipient, but then the question becomes, why does Luke write this gospel to Theophilus? Which brings us to point number four, the reason. Luke tells us plainly his reason for writing. Look at verse four. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so assuming that Theophilus was a real person, and again, we have no reason to doubt that, uh, I think it's implied in the phrase, the things you have been taught, that Theophilus was a believer. Uh, though it's entirely possible that he was also an unbeliever who was uh, seriously considering the things that had been taught to him about Christ. But either way, Luke writes this gospel for him so that he might have certainty other versions have, so that you may know the exact truth. That's why I've done all this research. That's why I've spent all this time with these interviews with these eyewitnesses. That's why I've put this all together. 
It's so that you might have certainty. I think that's what Luke means when he says that he's written an orderly account in verse 3. That's not so much referring to like a chronological ordering, because some of the stuff in this book is arranged uh, thematically or topically. But it's an orderly account in the sense that Luke has intentionally ordered it and put it together in a way that it would be convincing and persuasive that reading it might produce in Theophilus assurance and certainty. Friends, the Gospels are not just history books, historical facts, historical records of Jesus. I mean, they are historical facts and historical records in the sense that these things really did happen. But at the same time, it's not just like a random list of things that Jesus did and Jesus said. And the Gospels, Luke included, are histories written with a purpose. And Luke makes his purpose clear that Theophilus might have certainty. John also makes his purpose clear. John 20, 31. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Like if I wrote down all the things that Jesus did, uh, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. But I've written about these, John says. I wrote this orderly account, to use Luke's words, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Point number four, the reason, right, the reason that the gospel of Luke was written was that its readers might have certainty. Maybe you've walked in here this morning and you would acknowledge, be honest, you'd say, I, I am not a Christian. I would, you'd openly admit that uh, Jesus is not your Lord and Savior. Uh, you're here because maybe you think you need to be here, uh, you're here because you're just maybe curious about this whole Jesus thing. Uh, maybe you're here because someone dragged you here and you really don't want to be here and you just can't wait for me to stop talking. Or maybe you're a believer. Uh, maybe you're a Christian. Uh, you are a child of God. You are united with Christ. You've been born again. But you struggle with your assurance. You would be honest and say, I struggle with doubt. I struggle with my salvation. I struggle with whether this truly applies to me. I struggle with my up and down faith and my unbelief. Well, whichever category you fall in, a friend, I tell you, Dr. Luke has written this book, this gospel. God has preserved this book, this gospel, that you might have certainty that you might have certainty that Jesus really was born of a virgin, the Son of God who took on human flesh, very God of very God. That you might have certainty that Jesus really did live a perfect life, sinless in every way, always doing what pleased the Father. That you might have certainty that Jesus really died on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. 
dying in the place of sinners like us, taking our sin upon himself, that you might have certainty that he rose again from the dead, for death could not hold him. That you might have certainty that he really did ascend to the right hand of the Father and he sat down because his work was done. It is finished. That you might have certainty that by trusting in Jesus and trusting his finished work on the cross, uh, by repenting of your sin and turning to him, you can be saved. You can have your sins forgiven. You can be united to Christ. You can have his righteousness imputed to you. For Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Lost sinners like me and like you. But maybe most importantly, you might have certainty that not only did all this happen, and not only is all this true, but it happened for you, and it's true for you. Like your sin has been paid for. You have been made righteous. You have eternal life to look forward to. You are now a son or a daughter of God. 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, do you know that you have eternal life? Come to Christ. Abide in Christ. You can know. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Friends, we sang it this morning. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The introduction, right? The preface. Friends, we are just getting started. I am really looking forward uh, to studying this gospel with you all. Primarily because of how much time we are going to spend learning about Jesus. Like, don't you want to know him better? He is the most uh, wonderful a glorious, loving, meek, mighty, righteous, giving person we could ever get to know. I am I'm just looking forward to getting to know him better, and I hope you are too. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your son, Jesus. We acknowledge that he is the greatest treasure, that he is the, the pearl of great price, that he is our all in all. Father, we pray that you would grant to us a great desire from you to know him more. Even as the Apostle Paul prayed that he might know him more and the power of his resurrection. Lord, we want to know him more and the power of his resurrection. So we pray that our time in this gospel would be profitable for our souls. That we would not just grow in knowledge for the sake of knowledge, but that we would grow in knowledge of the Lord. 
and that our lives might then reflect that knowledge to your glory. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.